I invite you to come with me to the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 6, Galatians chapter 6. So good to be with you again this morning. Thankful for uh, our elders. They're so gracious to Keith and me, and uh, they grant us a liberal time off to get away and get refreshed and uh Regina and I and Emily did that these last few weeks. We celebrated two weeks ago. Emily graduated from Tarleton State, and uh, we are all excited about that. And um, then we have promised her for years some a trip, and so we had all these different ideas about trips and then COVID and all that stuff. But uh, So that changed our immediate plans, but we got away and got some refreshment time together as a family, and that was a delight. Got caught up a little bit on sleep, and uh, we're thankful for that as well, and just thankful that uh, we could be away. Thankful for Keith. Um, I say all the time, this is not my pulpit, but I am stewarded by God as a guardian over it. And uh, I never hesitate turning it over to Keith. I love for Keith to preach. And we were able to catch one of the services and... um, he blessed my soul by his ministry of the word. Isn't he an encourager and faithful with the word and uh, just such a gift of God's grace to us. And I'm thankful for that. Thankful for the elders that we have been given to watch over our souls. They're faithful men and um, what a privilege. And so it's great to get away. And I got to tell you, I was really excited to be back. So it's been three weeks since I've preached. So um, I'm, I'm loaded up. And uh, grateful to be able to come with you to the communion table this morning. I hope this passage is familiar to you. Let me read the first five verses of Galatians 6. And then let us come uh, to the throne of God's grace and ask him to guide us in understanding. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work and then... He will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. Father, thank you for your word. We've just sung asking you to speak. And as we pause before we consider this word, we thank you that you already have spoken. You've spoken with clarity, precision, accuracy, with revelation, so that we who are finite can have some apprehension of that which is infinite. Not understanding in fullness, not understanding in completeness, Not understanding the full complexity of who you are, but we know something of you that you have designed us to know. Not only that you have designed us to know, but you have 
revealed it for our benefit, for our good, for our transformation, for our hope, for an object of worship to us. And we pray that as we consider this word this morning, that this word will have that effect on us. That we will be changed by it. That we'll grasp something more about you. That we'll grasp something more about ourselves. That we'll grasp something more about what you've given us to do and how we might serve you. How we might be transformed by you. Even as we come to the table of communion, we ask again that you would not only prepare us for that table, but you would transform us as we come to that table. And that you would even transform us through the observation of that table. We pray these things, praying confidently, hopefully in you and in Christ our Savior. Amen. I have said it a great many times. Relationships are hard. It's not that we don't like people. We do. But sometimes we just need a break from people. Sometimes it would just be nice to be a hermit and inaccessible to people. At least we thought that before COVID hit. That sentiment has been expressed many times and by various people and I came across this week a number of letters, largely of literary people, as they wrote to some of their friends and the challenges of being a friend and in relationship. Says poet Elizabeth Bishop, after being so social, I just don't feel like myself at all. (laughs) I love this. I'm exhausted all over, but particularly the face which I suppose comes from wearing a horribly fixed grin for so long. Says Virginia Woolf, Tomorrow I shall go back to London, and there already waits for me a string of inevitable experiences, what is called seeing people. You don't know what that means. It means one can't get out of it. Says novelist Zora Neale Hurston, being under my own roof and my personality not invaded by others makes a lot of difference in my outlook on life and on everything. Oh, to be once more alone in a house. She said that in 1951, like seven decades before 2019 and 2020. Dostoevsky wrote, I scarcely go anywhere. Everything seems tiresome. And said one photographer writing to the noted photographer Ansel Adams in 1934, my real problem is a more personal one, the need of being alone. I am not antisocial. I have a deep affection for my friends and family, feel deeply for suffering humanity and also for suffering animals. But at times... I have a desperate need to be absolutely alone. Um, maybe you guys have felt that way as well, haven't you? I just, I just need a break. You people are wearing me out. Relationships are hard. At times we want to run away and get some solitude, get some quiet, get some seclusion, get... Get some time to to rest by ourselves. But relationships are essential. They're critical. 
one of my favorite book titles of all time. Really helpful book, actually, is a book by Paul Tripp and I think uh, Tim Lane with him. Relationships, a mess worth making. Doesn't they capture it? They're a mess, but they're worthwhile. And I would even add they're necessary, they're required, they're a priority. Because of this past year, year and a half almost now, that has created all kinds of relational challenges. As we came into 2021, I thought I wanted to spend some time, particularly on communion Sundays, thinking about relationships in the body and, and the priority of those relationships and the importance of those relationships and what those relationships might look like from Scripture's perspective. What does God say? What does the Bible say about our relationships with one another and how we're to relate to one another and how we're to care to one another? This morning we're going to come to a familiar passage, what I trust is a familiar passage in Galatians chapter 6 in those opening verses. And what we're going to find in these verses is this truth, that living by grace means we live to help people through all their troubles. Living by grace, because we have been graced by God with salvation, because we have been graced to be put into the body of Christ, because we have been graced to be liberated from sin, we are not freed from dealing with sinful problems and sinful people. In fact, we have been equipped, prepared, sent out into the church, particularly to help people with their problems. In fact, from this passage, we might even be able to say, because of what we have from Christ, we run towards people and we run towards problems and difficulties. Living by grace means we live to help people through all their troubles. In this passage, the apostle will make four statements about helping others in their various needs. Four statements about helping others in their various needs. The first is given to us in verse 1. The apostle is going to give us a number of fundamental principles for helping others when they are in need. Now, as we come to verse 1, it's helpful to remember the context of the book of Galatians and what Paul was writing to and writing about. And primarily in Galatians, the apostle is combating legalists who had come into the church, Judaizers, who were claiming to trust Christ, but wanted to put the church back under the law as a means for being sanctified. So they're trying to merit sanctification by their own, by their own ability, by their own accomplishments, by their own completion or fulfillment of the law, if you will. And those Judaizers were influencing the churches of Galatia. And we find that, for instance, in chapter 3, verse 3, Paul says, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? That is, if the Spirit of God has started your spiritual life, if you've been justified by the Spirit of Christ, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Are you, are you being made mature, complete, sanctified by the process of keeping the law in a fleshly manner. Are you, are you claiming to say that you need only Christ for justification but not for sanctification? And some were essentially saying that. Some were trying to 
find justification through the completion and the and the fulfillment of the Old Testament law, particularly as it related to their Jewish festivals and Jewish feasts. So chapter 4, verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. So you're going back into the law and you're you're appealing to the law and you're applying the law, trying to keep all of those festivals and those sacrifices under the law in an effort to be sanctified. And he says in verse 11 of chapter 4, I fear for you that perhaps I've labored over in you in vain. I've brought the gospel to you and I fear that, that you've left the gospel for this false gospel of sanctification by self. Some were attempting to be sanctified as a further application of the law by being circumcised. So chapter 5, verse 2, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. So they're saying, we want Jesus for salvation, but then what, what you really need to be really saved and really sanctified, you need to be circumcised as a mark of your, of your faithfulness to God, your commitment to God, your identity with God. Verse 3, again, I testify to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. If you're going to attempt to be sanctified by the law, you have to keep every aspect of the law at all times. That's the only way you can be sanctified by the law. And implicit in that, obviously, is you can't do that. Further, he says in verse 4, you have been severed from Christ. You are seeking justified by the law. If you're seeking the law as your justification and sanctification then you're removed from Christ. You have no part with Christ. In fact, he says it even more bluntly, the end of verse 4, right? You've, you've fallen from grace. That's his summary. So Paul is writing to address the, 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 the infiltration of this idea of legalism for salvation, legalism particularly for sanctification. <clears throat> and Paul is arguing in the book of Galatians that we have been saved by grace, we're kept by grace, and that grace that has saved us has liberated us from the law. The law is is no longer binding the believer to keep it either for justification or sanctification. But that liberty does not mean that he stops working on sanctification. So he still pursues sanctification. So chapter 5, verse 16, I say, walk by the Spirit. So walk, labor, work, pursue, live your life in a particular way. Live it under the domination of the Spirit of God. But you have to work, you have to labor, you have to pursue. Don't give in to the flesh. We're going to see that Chapter 5, verse 13, you're called to freedom, brothers, but don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. So you're freed, but don't presume that that means you just kick back and do nothing. You're working, you're laboring, you're pursuing, you're walking by the flesh. Verse 24, same chapter, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So so even though you're in Christ, you have the flesh, you still have this thing that is pulling you away from Christ and towards sin, and you're you're laboring. But in all these things, remember, you're not doing it under your own strength, you're doing it by the Spirit. It's the Spirit who is empowering. It's the Spirit who is equipping. What I want you to simply see is that the Apostle, as, as a tenor of this book, is saying... You're free from the law, 
But that freedom from the law doesn't mean that you're free from interacting and with and pursuing sanctification. It doesn't mean you're free from relationships. In fact, it means that now you're really equipped to pursue relationships and to pursue Christ-likeness in relationships. So what is this, what is this liberated life that is free from the bondage of the law that you can't keep? What does that look like as we relate to sins? Or excuse me, as we relate, relate to relationships? And Paul will say in these verses, starting in verse 1, that even though we're freed from sin, even though we're freed from the law, it doesn't mean that sin is unimportant and overlooked. To the contrary, to be graced with liberty means that we take sin seriously. We address sin. The freedom that liberated us from sin was deeply costly. And we understand the cost of sin as well. And so there's a sense in which we're laboring all the harder to help people out of the things that have put them into bondage. So how do we help people when they're struggling? Particularly, how do we help people when they sin? Now, even as I say that, notice I didn't ask the question, do we help people when they're struggling with sin? That is tacitly obvious in this text. Yes, we help people. The question is not, do we help people? The question is, how do we help people? Let me just give you a number of principles for helping those who are struggling, particularly with sin. First of all, recognize the reality of the need to help them. Notice notice what the apostle says in verse 1. Even if anyone is caught in any trespass. Now, when he says, even if, that's a conditional sentence. And sometimes in the Greek, the conditional sentence means, even if, and it does, there's a certainty to it. And that's not what Paul uses here. What Paul has here is, even if, and the sense is, and they might not. In other words, not every believer will always be trapped and ensnared by sin. In other words, there's a, there's a liberty and a freedom from sin. The believer is able to live free from the bondage of sin and the power of sin. And he doesn't have to sin. But when someone does sin, there is a particular way that we are to act in relationship to them. Notice also that he says, even if... Anyone, the word there uh, that, that's translated anyone isn't actually a pronoun. It's actually the word a man, even if a man. And the idea is any man, any individual. And the sense is that the Paul is being intentionally vague, helping us to understand that, that there is a possibility that any person can be ensnared and entrapped by sin, that that even while we have been justified by Christ, we haven't been freed from all of the weight of sin. We don't say, I'm sin free. I don't have any sin ever again. I proved that to my wife this week. 
that sin is still within me. The potentiality for it is still there. And you probably did too. And Paul would have us to understand, beware of thinking that you can't fall. Beware of thinking that, that you won't ever be entrapped and ensnared. It's, it's similar to what he says in 1 Corinthians 10.12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. If someone thinks, I'm, I'm standing, I'm okay. There's nothing that can bowl me over. Be careful. And Paul would have us to understand that whoever is overwhelmed by sin and falls into it, needs our help. Anyone, everyone who is trapped. What does the trap look like? Notice he says, anyone is caught in any trespass. The word trespass means something like to slip to fall aside. And the idea is that there's an unintentionalness to this sin. It's not like the individual said, I just don't care about God and Christ and the Word of God anymore and I, I know what I want and I am running to that sin. That's not what's going on here. And we don't know the exact dynamics. There's a variety of ways that someone might fall. But Paul's sense is simply that he, he wasn't intending, he wasn't looking for sin, he wasn't planning to sin, he wasn't being in rebellion against Christ. Maybe, maybe he simply just forgot chapter 5 and walking by the Spirit. And for one brief moment, or one day, he said, I'm going to try this on my own. Not out of rebellion, it just happened to him. In fact, that same sense is in the verb that's given to us. He's caught. He's, he's overtaken. He's overtaken by surprise. He, he, he wasn't planning for it to happen. He was planning to walk with Christ. He was, he was whack, planning to, to walk away from sin. He was planning to walk in obedience. And, and he's just caught. It, it, it actually pictures someone that's running... And sin is running along behind him and overtakes him and grabs him and pulls him in. Maybe he just wasn't being careful. Like the disciples in the garden when Jesus says, watch and pray. And they're just weary physically. And they fall asleep. And sin overtakes them. Perhaps he thought he could withstand the temptation. He got too close to it. Whatever the circumstances, he's trying to run towards Christ and he falls into something. The sense from this particular passage, this verse, is also not that this, that this is a repeated pattern. It's, it's, not that, it's not that this is his lifestyle. It's not that this is identifying him. It's just, it's that momentary slip. It's that, it's that untimely word. That ungracious word, that angry word, that comment as you're driving home in 377 and fighting traffic at 530 in the afternoon saying, this isn't the Granberry that I remember. 
people aren't driving the way I want them to drive and grumbling and complaining. And, they, and we get caught. Isn't this the norm? Isn't this the way it is in your life? This is norm. It's not, just, it's not necessary to sin. Listen, it's not necessary to sin. We don't have to sin. We need to find hope in this verse. Even if anyone is caught, and you don't have to be caught. You don't have to sin. You're in Christ. You've been given the Spirit of God. You're liberated. You don't have to. We don't have to sin. But it's not unusual to sin. We're still in these fleshly bodies. And we have been put in relationship with each other to help with these difficult circumstances and our failures. And we need to help. We need to come alongside. That's why God put us in this body. Another principle, help with the goal of restoration. You are spiritually says, restore such a one. Which one? The one that's caught in a trespass. Restore that one. The word restore is used in a secular context for doctors setting bones that have been broken so that they will mend and the limb that was broken becomes usable and functional again. Or of mending nets, uh, fishing nets that were torn so that the nets become usable and functional again. And Paul would have us to say, we need to relate to one another in the body in such a way that when someone sins, we come alongside and we help them and they become usable and functional in the body of Christ again. This is discipleship. In fact, we, we talk occasionally around here about church discipline and the priority of church discipline. And the goal of church discipline is not to be punitive, it's to be restorative. Remember Matthew 18, if you go to your brother and your brother repents, what, what, what does it say? You've won your brother. He's back with Christ. He's back in the flock. He's back and he's functional. That's the goal, to make that one restored. We see this uh, in a number of place, other places as well. Consider Second Timothy chapter 2. The apostle says, If anyone cleanses himself from these things, from a variety of dishonoring sins, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. So, so the goal of people dealing with sin is to make them to be functional in the body of Christ again so that they're usable. We see this, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Philemon, chapter 10. Paul writes to Philemon, appealing, he says in verse 10, Philemon 10, about his child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. In other words, Onesimus became Paul's spiritual child while Paul was imprisoned. And notice verse 11. Who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. And that's what the gospel does. 
It takes us and restores us and makes us useful. And that's our objective. When we come alongside people, we say, you're hurting and you're broken. Let me help you so that you can be functional in the body and restored as well. Our task in the body is not to be punitive towards sin. Ultimately, our goal is to be restorative. Remember, apart from one person, God only uses restored sinners to accomplish His will. We're all restored sinners. And so we come alongside others to help them to be restored so that they can function well in the body. So help with the goal of restoration. We want you to be back, to be involved, to be useful. Help with a spiritual heart. Notice he says, "Restore." Uh, if anyone is caught, you who are spiritual. The task of restoring is not for everyone. There's a limitation. There's a requirement if we are going to help people to be restored. And the requirement is that the restorer must be spiritual. Now, when he says spiritual, what does he mean? Well, he's just told us in chapter 5, and we haven't seen it extensively. I've alluded to it. But he tells us in chapter 5, what does a spiritual man look like? Well, he's one who is controlled by the Spirit of God, who's who has... The Spirit's fruit being produced in Him. Verse 22, love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those who belong to Christ, verse 24, have crucified the flesh. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. What does a spiritual man look like? He looks like the man who's being controlled by the Spirit of God and the Spirit's fruit is being produced in him. He's controlled by the Spirit of God and the Word of God. At the moment when he comes alongside that person, he's in harmony with the Spirit of God. So we would say it this way. Well, anyone can be ensnared by sin. That's the beginning of the verse, right? Anyone can be caught. The task of restoring cannot be done by anyone. Doesn't have to be done by a pastor, doesn't have to be done by elders, doesn't need to be done by deacons or Sunday school teachers or Awana leaders or trained certified biblical counselors. It needs to be done by people who are spiritual, who are under the control and the domination of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is producing fruit in them. And that means could be. Any of us. Could be any of us. You don't need a job title to help someone be restored. You just need the Spirit of God and walking under the authority of the Spirit of God. Help with a spiritual heart. Help with a gentle heart. The restorer should be controlled by the Holy Spirit so that his own spirit, his own heart is gentle Notice what he says, in a spirit of gentleness. He is spiritual, controlled by the spirit, and his spirit, his inner man, his heart is gentle. That's in fact a fruit of the spirit, isn't it? Verse 23 of chapter 5. 
The fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. As we come to help each other, we need gentleness. He's not, he's not malicious. He's not angry. He's not hostile. He's patient. He's kind as he helps sinners. Help with a gentle heart. We don't see the brother that's in sin and say, Aha! Gotcha! Now I'm going to make you pay. No. It's like, hey brother, I saw this. What's going on? How can I help you? I've been down that road. I know what it looks like. Can I minister to you and help you out? Help you out of the hole that you're in. Help with a gentle heart. Help with an examined heart. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Paul says, look to yourselves. Be diligently attentive. Look out for what's going on internally in you. And it's a present tense. Which means that it's something that we should be doing regularly, consistently, habitually. As, as often as you have opportunity, look and examine. Always be watchful for inclinations of movement away from Christ. Where is my heart trending? And this is so helpful. Looking to yourself. We need that, don't we? Because our hearts are so inclined to excuse sin and say, well, yeah, but I was, I was trying, it's okay. Or it was just one time, or it was just one event, or it was just one word. And we tend to self-justify, we tend to overlook, we tend to ignore sin and and the apostles reminding us we need to be attentive. We need to be watchful. And the vast majority just of us just don't watch enough. We need to watch. And even as I, even as I was thinking about that this week, I was thinking, okay, that's most of us. Most of us just need to be more attentive. Most of us need to be more rigorous. Most of us need to be more watchful of what's going on internally. Some of us are at the other end of the spectrum. Where just there's this reproachfulness and this examination that is unrelenting. And, and, and we just can't stop examining and testing. And, and everything we do seems to us to be sin. And we just don't think we ever can please God. When Paul says... Examine yourself. He has in mind that there's an end point to the examination. That we can get to the place where we examine ourselves and we can say, I'm ready. I can go. I have a, a clear conscience before the Lord. I'm equipped to go to this brother and help him. He does not mean for us to say, examine yourself and you will find that there is not a single person in the church that can ever help anybody. Because no one meets the standard of Christ. 
It's not what he's saying. He's saying you ought to be able to examine yourself and at the conclusion of the examination, either find yourself ready or find yourself in sin. You confess your sin and now you're ready to go. And you're equipped to help. And so some of us, some of us need to hear today, I'm not taking sin very seriously and I need to examine more intensively. Some of us need to hear after the examination, I'm free, I can help and God can use me. So it's not an absolute statement. Only restore someone if you never sin. But it is a cautionary statement. Make sure that your life has equipped you and prepared you to minister to that person. Why? Because there's a possibility for temptation. That you will fall into the same sin of the person that you're trying to help out of the sin. If you're not spiritual, in that moment of correction and restoration, you can fall. Says MacArthur, the spiritual are made of the same stuff as those who have fallen. So be careful. Watch out. And then let God use you. So let me summarize verse 1. Because we believe in grace, brothers and sisters, there's no lost cause. There's no helpless person. When we believe in grace and that grace has liberated us, we believe that God can extract us from every kind of horrible sin. And in His continuing grace, He uses sinners to come alongside other sinners and help them out. And have them be restored. Brothers, that's the heart of why Grace Bible Church exists. It's to take people to the shepherd. We shepherd God's people. We nurture God's people. We pastor God's people. We nurture God's people by taking them to the shepherd. Who will redeem them and help them. We do that in the worship service. We do that in GBI. We do that in the counseling room. We do that in home groups. We do that in the parking lot as we're walking to our cars after church. We do that over lunch. We come alongside sinners and we help. I'm not going to ask you to look around, but every person that's in this room is a sinner that needs help, including the person at front. We all need help. And God has put us in relationship with each other to help each other. Two questions. Who are you helping with some sin that you have observed? God has put you in relationship with other people who are Christians who sin so that you can come alongside and help them. Whose sin have you observed that you have held back and said, that's not my job. And you've been reluctant to help them. Brother, sister, God's put you in fellowship with them for the very purpose of helping them. The second question, are you today trapped in a sin, ensnared by a sin, 
struggling with a sin, caught by surprise by some sin, then just know that there's help for you. You don't, you don't need to be trapped. There's an army of believers to come alongside and help you. Tell us you need help and let us help you. That's the first statement that the apostle makes. The rest of this goes a lot faster. Promise. There's a second statement that the apostle makes, and that is that there is a heavy burden and a joyful end of helping others with their sin. When we help others, we can be sure of two things. It'll be a burden and it will be a blessing, not only to them, but also to us. Notice what he says in verse 2. So bear one another's burdens. The, the verb bear or carry has the idea that there is a mutual carrying of burdens. That we come alongside each other. You help me, I help you. Sometimes I help you, sometimes you help me. And the issue isn't, are we helping one another? The issue is that someone is always helping another. That's the way that we have been put together in this body. That's why we've been put together in this body. And the word burden, when he says bear one another's burdens, it It means just what it sounds like. It is something that is oppressive. It is exhausting. It is toilsome. It is heavy. Life is hard, isn't it? There are temptations. There are trials. There are troubles all around us. Every day. We need brothers to help us. And at times, when we go to help others, it will be really exhausting. In 2 Corinthians 11, the apostle talks about all of the the troubles he has been in. And then, at the end of all these things, you know, the dangers from rivers and robbers and countrymen and Gentiles and city and wilderness and sea and brothers persecution verse 28 apart from such external things and by that he means us to understand that's only the external now the hard part really comes verse 28 there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches who is weak without my being weak Who is led into sin without my intense concern? And Paul says, all that other stuff that happens to me physically, that pales in comparison to bearing the spiritual weight of those who are struggling. And we come alongside to help each other. And you will miss activities that you want to do. You will lose sleep. You will spend money sacrificially. And you will do it because God has put you there. More than, more than one time, I've had someone ask me, why do you keep helping that guy? <laughs> I, have, I have an image that's just burned in my mind of someone I was trying to help and I, somebody outside our church body and somebody at that person's church was sitting in with us and he was kind of paired up to help disciple and 
and one of our sessions finished and it didn't go well. And the couple left that I was trying to counsel and the discipler stayed behind and it is burned in my memory. He, he came up to my desk, grabbed the front of the desk and leaned across it almost in my face. Why do you keep trying to help them? This is hopeless. Because they keep coming. And because I believe God can restore them. And if I don't, who will? Well, you may want to keep going, but I'm done. And he was. If we don't help him, who will? I'm not saying it's not hard. It's hard. But if not me, then who? Notice something else. There's a joy that comes from this. Bear one another's burdens. And thereby fulfill the law of Christ. I think, I don't know. But I think Paul smiled when he wrote that. Remember, he's writing to a bunch of Judaizers or to a church that's been infiltrated by Judaizers who think that they can fulfill the Old Testament law and please God and merit their salvation or at minimum merit their sanctification. And Paul has been arguing, you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't. And now in chapter 6, he says, oh, there is one thing you can do, by the way. You can fulfill one part of the law. What can you fulfill? You can fulfill the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? To love one another. And thereby you prove that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. John 13. And Paul says, when you do this, you're demonstrating you're mine. You're demonstrating you've been changed by me. No, you can't keep the law for sanctification, but you can keep a law that demonstrates you're mine and you've been changed. And brothers and sisters, there's a joy in that. It's hard, but there's a joy in loving others. And there is a sinful barrier that will keep you from helping. That's in verses 3 and 4. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing... He deceives himself. If he thinks he's something, what, what is he talking about? He's talking about spiritual pride, isn't he? I've, I've accomplished something. Paul says, watch out for pride. And the language he uses here is abrupt and it's strong. This person supposes he is something. He's puffed up. Look at me. When in actuality, he's nothing. <laughs> Luther, trans, I think it was Luther that translated it. He's a zero. I like that. He's nothing. Nada. One commentator calls it a crushing assessment. He believes he has inherent significance and importance and he is inherently unimportant and powerless. He's been deceived. And the worst part is, end of verse Three, he's deceived, but he deceives himself. He's, he's been hoodwinked by himself. We're so prone. We're so prone to being prideful and self-deluded. 
I won't fall into that sin. I don't need help. I can make it on my own. How do we end up that way? One writer notes, sin speaks to us. Sin flatters us. Sin convinces us that we are something when we're not. We're, that we're less vile, less vain, less self, self-centered, or more patient, or more faithful, or more gracious than we really are. One of my favorite stories about pride is an account of uh, Muhammad Ali back when he was in his prime. And he was flying somewhere and he got on the airplane and the stewardess or the flight attendant was walking by Ali and noticed that he hadn't buckled. And so she stopped at his seat and said, uh, I need you to buckle your seatbelt. And he looked up at her and he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she quickly replied, Superman don't need no airplane. Buckle up. (laughs) Isn't that the way we are? I don't need help. I'm good on my own. Brother, you're a zero. You're nothing without Christ. So, verse 4, again, examine your own work. And then you will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone or yourself. And not in regard to another. What Paul's pointing to is when we become spiritually prideful, we're prone to looking at each other and saying, well, I love Jack Workman, but I'm better than Jack. Paul, and Paul says, no, stop, stop, stop the outward comparison. You don't know Jack's Jack's heart. Jack doesn't know your heart. You just look inwardly at yourself. Where are you? Where's Where's your progress of faith? How are you doing in where you have been in the past and where you're going now in the future? And then as you examine your own work, now you'll have reason for boasting in regard to yourself alone and and what God is doing in your own life, in your own heart. And not in regard to another brother. In fact, notice verse 14. May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. My boasting ultimately is not in what I've done. My boasting is what in Christ has done in me and through me and for me. So examine your own work. Examine where you are. Are you spiritually prideful or are you spiritually humble? Why does Paul address the issue of pride? Because pride will keep you from helping others. Pride will lead you to condemn others. <laughs> well, I, you know, that guy, if he just got a clue, then he wouldn't do. Fill in the blank. What's wrong with him? Why can't he figure it out? What's his problem? What's his problem? His problem is, I haven't come alongside him to help him. And as long as I'm spiritually prideful like that, I won't. But when I'm humble, I'll say, you know what? I needed help. And now let me go and help this brother who needs help in this moment. Finally, one last statement the Apostle makes. Verse 5, there's a real expectation in all helping 
verse 5, for each one will bear his own load. This is a reminder to us that we've been given to the body to help others within the body, but we still have a responsibility to be the primary carriers of our own burdens. When Paul says each one will bear his own load, he means something like carry your own God-ordained burden. What's interesting here is that word load is different than the word burden in verse 2. Verse 2, it has the sense of it is so weighty that you cannot begin to lift it on your own. You you need the help of another to come alongside you. In in this verse, verse 5, it's a load, it's heavy, but it's something like a backpack. It's something that can be carried. It's something that can be endured by the individual. You can do this. It's, it's heavy, but it's manageable. And the apostle would have us to understand that God intends us to carry some things on our own. And we shouldn't be spiritually, spiritually lazy. But get about the task of carrying the loads that we have. Whether we're those that are coming alongside or those that need others coming alongside of us. So we should not be apathetic about our own spiritual state, even while we're helping others. We need to say, I'm helping this brother, but I need help as well. I need to be taking care of the things I need to be taking care of spiritually so that I'm right with the Lord. I need to carry my burdens and fight my battles against my sin. Secondly, we, we shouldn't presume that there will be others there who will always carry all of our needs and care for all of our burdens. There are, there are certain problems, there are certain burdens that others simply cannot carry for us. And we've got to walk that load alone. No one can minister to me as her husband except Regine. That is her burden. No one can do it for her. She's got to do it. No one can parent our children. We have to parent our children. No one can fight my battles with my sin. I've got to fight that. Now, you can come alongside and you can help me and you can disciple and you can train and you can equip and you can provide accountability. But I've got to carry the load. And at the same time, while we are walking alone carrying the load, God will sustain us as we carry it. We do it alone, but we are not alone when we have Christ in us. We have the Spirit of Christ to change us, to help us. That's what chapter 5 in this book is all about, isn't it? We have what we need. In his compelling book, Into Thin Air, John Krakauer recounts the story of the disastrously tragic event in 1996 of a series of groups that tried to ascend Mount Everest and the eight people that died that year. I believe it is still the, the, the single worst year of climbing deaths on Mount Everest to date. Eight people died. Krakauer happened to be on one of the expeditions and he gave an account of what happened on the mountain. Near the end of the book, he tells of two Japanese climbers, Hanada and Shigakawa. He writes this, 
Just beyond the top of the second step, they came upon two other Ladakis, Smanla and Morup. According to an article in the Financial Times written by British journalist Richard Cooper, who interviewed Hanada and Shigakawa at 21,000 feet immediately after their ascent, one of the Ladakis was, quote, apparently close to death, the other crouching in the snow. No words were passed, no water, food, or oxygen exchanged hands. The Japanese moved on, and 160 feet further along, they rested and changed oxygen cylinders. Hanada told Cooper, quote, We didn't know them. No, we didn't give them any water. We didn't talk to them. They had severe high-altitude sickness. They looked as if they were dangerous. Shigakawa explained, quote, We were too tired to help. Above 8,000 meters is not a place where people can afford morality. End quote. And they died. That's the difference of the church and the world. We come alongside those who are broken. And we carry the burden with them so that they are restored to usefulness to the master who has called them. It's hard. And there's no greater joy. Our Father, we thank you for this reminder as we come to the communion table for it's at this communion table that Christ has prepared us for this very thing. It's in his death and his resurrection that he has made us to be alive. Alive from the death of sin and alive to ministry and service for you. And we thank you that in Christ we have been liberated to help one another in just the ways that we have talked about this morning. Thank you for this body that believes this, that loves it, that embraces it, and that does it well. Help us to fulfill the law of Christ, His law of love, even more. To love each other even better. To help each other walk with Christ and back to Christ. And may even now this remembrance of what Christ has done for us at the communion table be a stimulant to caring even better for one another. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.